When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 109, Nefertiti. This is part two in the story of Amunhotep IV, King of Egypt. Last time, we laid the foundations for his reign, how he ascended the throne and settled into his power. Today, we see how the important women in his life wielded influence and the role they might have played. From early diplomatic engagements, we get a sense of the power of Queen T. Then, we finally introduce Amunhotep's wife, that little-known woman named Nefertiti. This episode is divided into two chapters. In the first, we explore the events of Amunhotep's second year in power. In chapter two, we continue our conversation with Dr. Joyce Tildesley, Egyptologist, about Queen Nefertiti and the world in which she lived. This episode was supported by Jenny Fernström and Bara Fundel, who donated to the show. Jenny, Bara Fundel, thank you kindly. Shu, Lord of the Air and Light of the Sun, shines down upon you with gratitude. Also, thank you to Andy and Jessica, who became patrons of the show. With your support, priests may fill the temples with incense and song. Shu, in the light of the Aten, is grateful. Now then, on with the show. The year was 1362 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year one under the majesty of Nefer Keperu Rey Wa En Rey, Amunhotep, the god who rules Thebes, great in his lifetime. The pharaoh of Egypt had begun his rule well. His first acts as king were consistent with what came before. He expanded the temple of Amun-Re at Karnak. He appeared in the tombs of officials, making offerings to the gods. And, of course, he established himself upon the throne, proclaiming his agenda in the form of his name, Nefer Keperu Rey Wa En Rey. Beautiful are the appearances of Rey, Rey's one and only. If the pharaoh had some new ideas, he expressed them in modest terms, and was relatively conventional, all things considered. Starting in year two, though, those ideas began to evolve. While we continue the foundations of his rule, we will find the pharaoh's plans broadening. Pretty soon, he was introducing a host of new concepts to the public image of royalty. Before he could do all that, Amunhotep had to take care of some important business. Now that he was king, the pharaoh was obligated to establish his relationship with certain foreign powers. A transition in the monarchy meant a potential shift in the international scene. 
If Amunhotep IV was going to be a strong ruler, he needed to deal with the other great kings of the world. It was time to begin a new chapter in the Amarna Letters. Previously on the Amarna Letters, the late pharaoh Nebmatre Amunhotep III had spent a few years on a shopping spree. Like the most addicted of collectors, he had spread his network of diplomats across the Near East with one simple goal. Find and bring back princesses for the harem of the king. Over the past ten years, multiple women had abandoned their homelands to set up in the land of the Nile. Amunhotep III had communicated with lands like Babylon, Mitanni, and the Hittites, whom I'll introduce another time. The land of Mitanni was probably the most important. Located in a region that is now Iraq, Syria, and southern Turkey, the kingdom of Mitanni sat in a key geographical position. For the Egyptians and many other kingdoms, Mitanni was the crossroads of any political engagement. Once a stalwart enemy, now a consistent ally, the kingdom of Mitanni was among the most popular correspondents with the Egyptian court. As Amunhotep IV came to power, he took some care to establish his relationship with this kingdom. Early on, it seems that Amunhotep sent a caravan and some diplomats to Mitanni. He sent treasures like statues covered in gold and other trinkets to the court of the foreign king. The ruler of Mitanni, a man named Toishrata, had been friends with Amunhotep's late father, and the relationship between Mitanni and Egypt had grown strong under those older rulers. Now, the young Amunhotep honoured his father's promises and sent treasures to distant lands. There was a problem, though. Amunhotep IV sent significantly less treasure than his father had promised. In fact, his late dad had promised to send statues of solid gold. Unfortunately, Amunhotep IV only sent wooden statues with a golden exterior. As you can imagine, this kind of budget version didn't go so well with the foreign king. Early in Regnal Year Two or thereabouts, letters started to arrive in Egypt, sent from Mitanni. We have a short series of them, about four in total, that cover a period of several years. Which makes sense, each message would take a month or more to travel from Egypt to Mitanni, and with the endless discussions and decision-making, a single conversation might take a long time to sort out. Rather than bog down our story with the entire sequence, I'll be looking at these letters in roughly the same order and chronology as they seem to have arrived. First up, Tushrata's opening communication to the court of Egypt. The first surviving letter seems to date from early in the reign. It was addressed not to the king, but to his mother, Queen T, currently Egypt's most powerful female. Apparently, Tushrata knew of her role and hoped that he could use it to his advantage. Tushrata wrote to Queen T, asking her to fix the situation regarding these golden statues. His letter goes as follows, quote, Say to T, the mistress of Egypt, thus Tushrata, the king of Mitanni, For me, all goes well. For you, may all go well. For your household, for your son, may all go well. For Tadu Kepa, my daughter, may all go well. For your countries, for your troops, and for whatever else belongs to you, may all go very, very well. 
You, T, are the one who knows that I always showed love to Memoria, your husband, that is, Neb Ma'atre Amunhotep III, and that Memoria always showed love to me. And the things that I would write and say to your husband, you know these better than anyone. No one else knows those words quite as well. I had asked your husband for statues of solid gold, saying, May my brother send me as a greeting gift thirteen statues of solid gold, and of gold with genuine lapis lazuli. But now, Nafhururia, your son, that is, Nefakepurure Amunhotep IV, has sent statues of wood plated in gold. He has not given me even those things that his father was accustomed to give. End quote. The fact that Tushrata wrote to T personally speaks volumes about the Queen's international reputation. Although she may not have had much political power in foreign affairs, T was clearly a person whom other rulers, even as far away as Syria, knew about and acknowledged. As you can imagine, this is not common in the surviving record. The Amana letters preserve only a few traces of the Queen's, 95% of all correspondence is about the men. So T's prominence here is remarkable. At the very least, it suggests the influence this woman may have had over her son. Of course, Tushrata wasn't really writing to T personally. Rather, he was trying to negotiate with Amunhotep IV via indirect means. Instead of writing a letter saying, hey, thanks for the statues, but they aren't exactly what I asked for, you know, like an ingrate, the ruler of Matani hoped to correct the situation politely, via secondary paths of communication. So the letter is not really for T, even if it's addressed to her. And beyond the basic formalities, Tushrata wasn't particularly interested in the Queen Mother herself. In fact, he signs off his letter by saying, quote, Have your messengers communicate with my wife, a queen named Yuni, and my wife's messengers will come back to you in response. End quote. Tushrata didn't want to open a direct communication with the Queen Mother. He preferred this sort of correspondence to go between the royal woman. I think we should assume this was some kind of formality. Tushrata probably wasn't being intentionally rude, but perhaps obeying ideas of gender segregation, or boundaries of appropriateness, particular to their culture and time. Either way, the fact that Tushrata wrote to T directly was a fascinatingly bold and clever way to resolve his problems. So Tushrata, king of Mitanni, wrote a letter to the queen mother, T, asking her to assist him. Hopefully, T's influence would politely sway Amunhotep IV to send a new set of statues, some solid gold ones, over to the distant land. With a bit of background diplomacy, Mitanni might resolve its issues, without having to beg, openly. Did any of this work? Well, not really. The issue of the gold statues seems to have cropped up repeatedly over the course of three or four years. Tushrata tried endlessly to get his treasure from the pharaoh, but time and again he would be frustrated. In a future episode, we'll see what extraordinary lengths he went to, at some points coming actually close to begging. What was the problem here? Well, Amunhotep IV doesn't seem to have been that interested in his foreign brother, Tushrata. 
The kingdom of Mitanni was far away, and the new pharaoh had concerns closer to home. Simply put, the surviving letters hint that the pharaoh was distracted, he had other priorities. So we'll come back to the Mitanni letters another time. For now, let's keep our eyes on the domestic front. After all, Pharaoh had some important concerns. Two years into his reign, wasn't it time to choose a queen? At the beginning of his reign, Amunhotep IV seems to have been guided by his mother. Queen T, matriarch supreme, accompanied her son in rituals and appearances. The great lady was probably the key point of continuity between the deceased Amunhotep III and the new ruler. But of course, Pharaoh could not be a bachelor forever, he had obligations to the bloodline. So sometime in regnal year two, he finally chose his bride. This young woman's name was Neferet Eti. Neferet Eti, Nefertiti. Is there a name more synonymous with pharaonic woman? Is there any other image that comes immediately to your mind than the painted bust of the queen? This lady is a legend for better and worse, and her story is a fundamental component of this period. But, like Amunhotep IV, I want you to temporarily forget whatever you know about this queen. Much of her fame, and her most famous images, do not come from the early days living in Thebes, but rather from the later times living at Amarna. Statues of the queen and images like her bust or the royal family are products of a culture specific to a very particular time and place. While we explore the first years of this period, it is important to focus only on what we have. There's more of that than you might think. The great queen Neferet Eti, whose name means the beautiful one has arrived, appeared on the political scene sometime in the second or third regnal year. We know she was not there earlier because she is absent from Amunhotep IV's earliest images. Instead, Queen T fills the role of great royal wife on the first monuments. It isn't until the Aten temples started to rise at Karnak that we get our first glimpse of the famous lady. What do we see? Well, it's complicated. Of course, the first image that comes to mind when you think of Nefertiti is, well, that image. The sculpted bust discovered at the city of Amarna and now displayed in the Egyptian Museum in Berlin. But temporarily, I want you to forget that image for two reasons. Firstly, it was made in the second half of Amunhotep's reign rather than the first, so it has baggage relating to artistic trends which I'll talk about in an upcoming episode. Secondly, and more importantly, the bust itself is so famous that it tends to overshadow any attempts to uncover who this woman really was. Fortunately, we are in podcast land, so with the power of words and the absence of images, let that Berlin statue piece slowly drift away. Instead, take yourself into the 2D realm, the realm of wall carvings and lines scratched in stone. The earliest known image of Nefertiti comes from Karnak. It shows the queen, along with her husband, bowing before the splendour of the god Aten. Nefertiti and the pharaoh are depicted upon their knees, prostrate before the divine majesty. In this scene, we see queen and king totally obedient to the whims of the god. 
Considering their earthly power, this kind of humble adoration is powerful indeed, and it was probably intended to convey that message. From her first appearance, the artists force us to see Nefertiti as a pious woman, supplicant before the god. The queen wears a long wig, a piece that seems to involve layers of braids or dreadlocks. Unfortunately, one of the blocks with the hair is missing, so we don't get the full picture. But the wig, to me, looks a lot like layered dreadlocks or braids. It hangs down over the shoulders and back, and is quite long. But there's definitely some kind of layering going on there, which sounds quite cool. I like to imagine Nefertiti at the hairdressers trying to find her look. Wig after wig go by, accompanied by some debonair stylist saying, no, mm-mm, uh-uh, honey, are you crazy? You know, stereotypes. Anyway. Nefertiti wears her long wig. Around the forehead, a band of gold holds two Uraeus cobras. And on the top of her head, she wears a distinctive crown. It's not her famous crown, that flat-topped blue thing. Instead, the young queen wears a sort of cap with two plumes or feathers emerging from the top. It's the kind of crown we used to see worn by Queen T. And if you didn't know any better, you might be forgiven for thinking this was T all over again. That might be intentional. Nefertiti wears crowns that are very similar to her elderly predecessors, and her physical features are similar as well. In the first images, Nefertiti appears in a classical artistic style. She has a straight nose, ending in a small bump or upturn. Her eyes are almond-shaped, with a slightly heavy eyelid. Again, these features started to creep into art during the last decade of T and Amunhotep III. So the profile of this woman is effectively the same. Young Nefertiti is just a continuation of what came before. Even her lips and cheeks carry the same plump, rounded features of the previous rulers. For all intents and purposes, she looks a lot like T, or any royal woman of the high 18th dynasty. I bring these points up to reinforce a basic principle I've been trying to hammer home. To begin with, Queen Nefertiti and her husband were relatively conventional, all things considered. And we should remember that, the couple were slow in the development of their famous identities. The profile and features of Nefertiti are so conventional that without hieroglyphs you wouldn't necessarily know it was her. We are fortunate that the block with her name still survives, and completes this little part of the scene. In a single cartouche, Queen Nefertiti appears in her royal splendour for the first time. The public name of the new queen was Nefer Neferu Aten. You might translate this name as something like, very good is the beauty of the Aten. The name is difficult to translate accurately because the word Neferu can go in different directions. It can mean beautiful, very good, pleasant, happy, goodness as a concept, and even youthfulness, plus a bunch of other words in a similar vein. Basically, Neferu is something in the order of good and pleasant, but, you know, dialed up a bit. It's hard to tell if this name, beautiful as the beauty of the Aten, was produced by a carefully planned theology, or a teenager who had just discovered poetry. Either way, Nefer Neferu Aten seems to convey something that is simultaneously over the top, but also reasonably subtle. 
So the great wife of the king, Nefer Neferu Aten Neferet Iti, had arrived. She showed up around Regnal Year 2, approximately 1361 BCE. Like 99.9% of Egyptian queens, she appears fully formed, invested with titles, and with no trace of her origins. Normally, this wouldn't be an issue. Most queens are relatively anonymous, and we just accept it as part of the patriarchal Egyptian tradition. But this isn't any old queen, this is Nefertiti. So people are naturally curious, where did this beautiful lady come from? Without keeping you in suspense, I will simply say that we don't know who Nefertiti's family was, or where exactly she originated. There are two prominent theories, but they are still both unproven. The first idea is that Nefret-Eti might have been a foreigner. A hundred years ago, Sir William Flinders Petrie suggested that the beautiful lady had come to Egypt from elsewhere. He suggested Matani as her origin, making Nefret-Eti one of the foreign brides who flocked to the court during the reign of Amunhotep III. In that scenario, the name Neferet-Iti, the beautiful one, has come, might have been an Egyptian invention, a new name for an otherwise foreign bride. That theory doesn't hold that much water today. For one thing, there are plenty of foreigners in the record with non-Egyptian names. Some of Amunhotep III's other brides, like Gilu Kepa, show up in the records without any changes to their identity. And some of the Amana letters mention women like Gilu Kepa or Tadu Kepa without any trouble. So that theory that a Mitanni princess had to rebrand in order to fit with the Egyptian court is a little bit tenuous. Granted, Nefret-Eti might have changed her name when she became a queen, like how Amunhotep IV became Neferkeperure Wa Enre. That is certainly possible. It's just that, on the current evidence, we only have maybes. There's nothing firm with this theory. The second explanation, and perhaps the more likely one, is that Nefertiti came from Egypt, from a prominent court family. Like a dozen or a hundred queens before her, Nefertiti may have been plucked from obscurity, rising to prestige after the pharaoh took a liking to her. She would not be the first or last woman selected in this way. Heck. Even in the reign of this pharaoh, it's going to happen twice. So the simplest explanation is that Nefertiti was an aristocratic girl who became famous after receiving the crown. The only question is, who would be her parents? Unfortunately, we don't know that either. We know a lot about Queen T's family, but that is rare. She is unusually well attested. For Nefertiti, like most queens, we simply don't have the information. We can be sure that Nefertiti wasn't a princess. She doesn't have the title King's Daughter or King's Sister anywhere in her resume. So she probably wasn't a long-lost child of Amunhotep III, or anything like that. Apart from that, well, there's not a lot. We don't know who Nefertiti's father was, who her mother was, or where the family came from. It's a lot of question marks. That being said, we do have two pieces of information which are quite helpful. You see, there are two women connected with Nefertiti that show up in the artistic records of the time. These are Nefertiti's wet nurse and her sister. Nefertiti had a sister, 
Not a lot of people know that. The sister was named Moot Nejmet, which means pleasing for Moot, the mother goddess. It might also be translated as Moot Banneret, which means essentially the same thing, but there is some ambiguity about which hieroglyph is being used here. Either way, Moot Nejmet or Moot Banneret is a nice conventional name, which makes it even more likely that the two sisters are native Egyptians. We don't know much about this lady specifically. Like most royal women, she is simply there occasionally, and doesn't really do much. Still, it's pretty cool that we know about her. I hope that one day, we have more information. Meanwhile, Nefertiti's wet nurse was a woman named Tay. Tay, a woman of the court, shows up at Amana with the titles, quote, Nurse who reared the divine lady, and Nurse for the great wife of the king. Apparently, Tay knew Nefertiti as a child, being a wet nurse for her when she was suckling. Again, this suggests that Nefertiti was a native Egyptian, and was raised in an ordinary household by a wet nurse. Later on, Tay might have served the same role again when Nefertiti herself started to have children. Now, wet nursing in ancient Egypt is a bit complicated, simply because the title could mean one of two things. On the one hand, Tay might have been a literal wet nurse, providing milk for the baby. Or, the title might be a bit more symbolic, relating to education and tutoring. In Egypt, members of the aristocracy were frequently given charge of teaching the royal children. In the days of Hatshepsut, the courtier Senenmut was in charge of Princess Neferure. In the reign of Totmose III, courtiers like Hekernechech helped to educate the prince Amunhotep II. For Nefertiti, young child of the aristocracy, a wet nurse might have filled a similar role. So perhaps that's what's happening here. It's hard to tell on the current evidence. Until we have more information, we should probably take the title wet nurse literally. So Tay, the nurse who reared the divine lady, was most likely the one who gave Nefertiti her milk at the beginning of her life. In many ways, Tay was probably like a mother to her. Now, Tay doesn't show up randomly. She is the wife of a very prominent courtier, a man who served Amunhotep IV for his entire reign, and subsequently wielded great influence at the court of Tutankhamun. This courtier was named Ai. He is a very noteworthy individual. Ai was Tay's husband, and if that's all he was, you might not think twice about him. But it's possible, just possible, that I is the man who was Nefertiti's father. I was a courtier, Tay was his wife, but Tay was a second wife. Previously, I had been married to a woman named Yui. Jeez, this family loves their monosyllabic names. Yui apparently gave birth to I's son. And it's possible that this lady died in childbirth while producing a daughter, Nefertiti. In this hypothesis, Ai's second wife Tay might have raised Nefertiti as a sort of stepmother. She wasn't her literal mother, so she didn't get the title Mother of the Queen, but she would have nursed the child, suckled her, and raised her, just like an ordinary mother. In which case, a title like Wet Nurse might also be understood as stepmother. Confused? 
Don't worry, I am too. Basically, what Egyptologists guess, and it is just a guess, is that Nefertiti might have been the daughter of Ai and his first wife, Yoi. But Yoi died, and the second wife, Te, took charge of the girl. In this scenario, Ai is Nefertiti's father, and that might explain her origins. I should stress that this hypothesis is still very tenuous. It is full of question marks and maybes, and really doesn't have much firm evidence. In fact, apart from the role that Lady Tay played as the wet nurse, we only have one piece of information that might hint at Nefertiti's family. There is one title that might indicate a relationship between Nefertiti and Ai. This title is one called the Eat Netcher, the God's Father. The Eat Netcher is a position that might have been held by the Queen's biological father. In other words, the father-in-law of the Pharaoh. That idea is based mainly on one particular individual, the father of Queen T, the great man Yuya. Yuya was a god's father, and we know for certain that he was both an Eat Netcher and the father-in-law of a pharaoh. On that basis, it's possible that I, who held the title God's father, was Nefertiti's father, therefore Amunhotep IV's father-in-law. But it's equally possible that the title God's father just refers to being a priest. My personal opinion is that I'm sceptical on the theory. Although one prominent God's father was the father of a queen, that could just be a blip. The title itself dates back to the Old Kingdom, and we have no hard evidence for any man except Yuya holding the title God's father while being the father-in-law of a ruler. So it's possible that I was Nefertiti's father, but we don't have any hard evidence for it. Whatever her origins, young Nefret-Eti, Nefertiti, arrived on the scene and soon became the Queen of Egypt. Somehow, this young girl caught the attention of Amunhotep IV, and probably his mother Queen T, and pretty soon she was ascending to the throne. By the end of regnal year two, around December of 1361, Neferet Eti became the great royal wife of the pharaoh of Egypt. It was a role that she would fill for the next 16 years. We now come to the end of chapter 1. After the break, we continue our discussion of Nefertiti in the form of my conversation with Egyptologist Joyce Tildesley. Part 1 of that interview already released as episode 107b. Today, we continue the conversation. I will eventually release the full interview as a standalone episode, but for now, Please enjoy part two of the discussion as we talk about Nefertiti with Dr. Joyce Tildesley. See you in a moment. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
An interview with Dr. Joyce Tildesley, Egyptologist at Manchester University. Part 2. In 2018, Dr. Tildesley published the book Nefertiti's Face, a look at the world-famous image of this queen, from its first discovery, through the history of the lady herself, and on into the afterlife of this image. Nefertiti's face, in the form of her statue bust from Amarna, has become part of the popular image of ancient Egypt. Tracing this history, Dr. Tildesley crafted a wonderful book, which I do recommend you read. We now pick up our discussion where it left off from part 1. Back there, we spoke about Queen T, mother of Amunhotep IV. Now, it's all Nefertiti, and the complicated history of the Queen. Enjoy! You mentioned our our dear friend Nefertiti moment, moments ago, so let's let's move on to this enigmatic figure, uh, the wife of Akhenaten. Nefertiti is unprecedented in the literal sense. We have no idea about her origin. What do you think is the most likely explanation for her origin? I think actually we have to again remember that it's quite unusual to have such a good background for a queen as we have for Queen T. It is it's far more usual not to know as much about the parentage because from the moment that Nefertiti married Akhenaten, the only thing that mattered was the fact she was married to the king. And in a way, her parents didn't matter that much. So they're not trying to hide something when they don't tell us who her parents were. Mm. Her name her name means a beautiful woman has come, and that has suggested to people that she was named because she had some foreign name that no one could pronounce, so that when she arrived in Egypt <laughs> as a foreign princess, she, she was given a new name that everyone could cope with. But actually, personally, I don't think that's likely to have happened. It would have been very, very unusual for a foreign princess to marry into the royal family and become the queen consort and become as clearly important as Nefertiti was in the reign. It just never happened because the royal family didn't want a foreign queen consort and a half-foreign child inheriting the throne. There would be split loyalties. It would be very difficult. So although foreign princesses did come to Egypt and they did enter the harem, at this time they did become queen consort. So I, I agree with you. I think that she's part of this Akhmin family, possibly um, a niece of Queen T, connected to Queen T in some way, who's married a cousin married Akhenaten and, and so she's she's a commoner in that she's not born royal but she's not mm. a commoner as in you know anyone that you just meet in the street who's walking around she's obviously someone who's of important birth important enough to marry the king but it's so frustrating mm. that we don't know how they met it would be fantastic if we did know this in my head I imagine Queen T plotting this marriage but um, who knows <laughs> just sort of casually bring, bringing Nefertiti into the palace and saying Amunhotep, have you met my met my niece? She's she's very <laughs> elegant and very erudite, you know. Yeah. From the very beginning of Akhenaten's reign, or we should say Amunhotep the Fourth's reign, Nefertiti seems to appear as a symbolic counterpart to the king. We we see her in one image um, smiting enemies, which is conventionally a male pose, and also acting very much alongside him in the offerings and the royal activities. How would you describe Nefertiti's role, at least her public role, in Akhenaten's regime? Does she does she follow T's trajectory of slowly increasing status to the point of equality with her husband, or is her role different from that of T? I, I think she follows T, and she supports her husband throughout his reign. I don't think she becomes equal. 
And I don't think tea becomes equal. I think they are both very powerful women, but I think there's still a big gulf between them and the king. I think what we have to again remember with Nefertiti is that we have all this art from Amarna. Amarna was abandoned after um, 25 years. A lot of art survived. A lot of Akhenaten's art actually survived from Thebes and so on. So we have a lot more images of Nefertiti than we have of other queens. So although we've not seen a queen consort smiting before, we're again left with the problem, is this because T did it, but we don't have the image of it? Or is it because Nefertiti is truly the first one to do this? Mm -hmm. The the one thing I feel fairly clear on, though, is that there is no piece of art that shows Nefertiti doing more than, than Akhenaten. The only place you could possibly say that that happens is at one temple at Luxor, in Jinkarnak Temple, where in the Hood Ben Ben Temple, she um, is the person who offers to the gods, and there's no sign of the king in that temple. That's very unusual. But as that seems to be an entirely female temple, it's also perhaps not surprising. It doesn't mean that she's usurping his role. It means that he's not there because it's a female Mm. temple. So I think Mm. she's really important. I think she's got religious power. I think she helps him to, to achieve the living divinity that he wants to achieve. But I don't think she's in any way his equal. More, perhaps more broadly, how does she fit within the overall, or at least our overall understanding of 18th dynasty queenship? Is she consistent with queens who came before or is she unique? I think she's consistent with queens who come before, and I think she's potentially consistent with queens who come after. We don't mm-hmm. tend to look at the queens who come after, two of whom would have been her <laughs> daughters, um, because they have shorter, their, their kings have shorter reigns. Meritat and the eldest daughter seems to have been queen of Egypt for a very short time, but we get the impression that T and Nefertiti and Meritat and Ankis Arten are all powerful, active women, very much in the same mould. But but because Nefertiti is pictured so often, and because also we have a, we've sort of developed a fascination with Nefertiti, we tend to focus on her, and that slightly diminishes the role that we allocate to the other ladies. Whereas I think as a family, it's a family of very strong, very politically and religiously active women. Okay. What was Nefertiti's religious role within the context of, say, Artanist theology? What part does she seem to play? I think that she is, she's serving as a conduit to, to the sun god. But I think also, in, in many ways, she's replacing the lost female elements of religion. Because the Artan is, is an asexual god, and it's, it's quite a cold, it's quite a cold religion. It's not very welcoming. She's, mm. She almost is with her husband and children, adding in that sort of family level and sort of something a bit more warm and welcoming than, than, than there would be with a just austere worship of the sun god. So I think she provides all that. And I think she is, if she's not a living divinity, she's certainly verging on the point of this because we do know that prayers are channeled through her and presumably they're effective. And... It's been observed that Akhenaten seems to embody Shu and Nefertiti seems to embody Tefnut. And Tefnut, at least in her in her sort of lioness guise, could easily be seen as a stand-in for Sakmet, Bastet, Hathor, all these very powerful protector deities who 
simultaneously have a nurturing nurturing yes. role both to the king and to the faithful. Yes, because it's important in the royal family. I think we see this with Akhenaten in particular, that women in general have daughters and wives and mothers have a protective function. They will protect the king. So we see him surrounded by his women and they are also protecting him in a, in a very sort of, with using their female powers to do this. And I think you're right. I think it connects back to these very powerful goddesses and their protection of their fathers. As, I, as you've mentioned in Nefertiti's face, um, yes, Nefertiti's face. It's very strange to describe that book because it sounds like I'm literally talking about her face. <laughs> well, I wanted to call it Nefertiti's bus, but the publisher didn't want me to. Ah, that'd be like a Mills and Boone book. <laughs> exactly, yes. You quite recently published a wonderful study of Nefertiti, specifically in her historical context. And as a figure of artistic study and inspiration, and as a sort of icon of pop cultural significance. So what inspired the work, which almost became Nefertiti's bust, but wound up being Nefertiti's face? <laughs> um, I think it's because when I was a child, we have a really good Egyptology collection in my local museum in Bolton in Lancashire, mm. in the UK. And we had an image, this Nefertiti's a replica of the Nefertiti bust in that museum. And of course, as a child, I thought it was the the bust because you always do, don't you? You always think sure. as a child that everything in a museum is real. And I just having seen it and then realizing slowly that the same image appeared in so many other museums as well, really, really good, high quality casts of it. And then realizing again that, that Nefertiti was, was so famous, even though she was so long dead, it's fascinating. Um, a lot of people from the northwest of England are interested in Egyptology because we have a lot of Egyptology museums around us, um, and it's inspired quite a few Egyptologists. Okay, a lifelong a lifelong fascination. But what was the specific impulse for this particular book at this time? I'd I'd been working in Manchester Museum for a time, and I'd been standing on the gallery because we had to do a thing called gallery duty which was basically just standing around and, you know, if there was any problem with a visitor to the gallery, we would assist them or if they asked a question, we could help. But you could actually listen to what people were saying when they looked at, at replicas and so on. And I got to see quite a few people who actually were looking at the Manchester Museum's replica Nefertiti head and discussing whether it was real, the real one or not. But it's not just that. Some people also felt that it wasn't even a genuine ancient image, that it was a modern one that had been painted up. And then people would go from this replica on, on display in a museum to the gift shop and buy a replica of the replica that they'd seen <laughs> in the museum. And I got kind of fascinated as to why we're so interested in Nefertiti, because I think it all pins down to this bust. My personal view is that she is an important and influential lady. I would never want to take that away from her. But I would see T and Mary Tartan, as we've already said, as being equally important so I became sort of quite interested in finding out why we focus on her and why it's that one image of her. It's always the same image of Nefertiti. Rather than being you know, more interested in exploring the whole of the Amarna period and, and all the Amarna royal women. And I guess it just went from there, really. Mm, that's very true. I mean, ask, ask a casual person on the street to name an ancient Egyptian and chances are 50% of them will say Nefertiti first as the main one, yeah, maybe Tutankhamun yes. <clears throat> or Ramesses yeah. or Cleopatra. So in the process of writing or researching and then writing this book, how, what did you, what did you learn that 
how did you enrich your understanding or appreciation of both the queen and the the historical journey of her famous image i mean you go in you go into great detail in numerous chapters about not just nefertiti in ancient egypt and not just the artistic description of the bust but also the actual journey that this image has taken from from egypt to germany through the in, the war and the the post war years and up to up to the modern day so how did researching all this sort of change your understanding of the queen herself and the the image i guess it made me realize how much of it is down to the modern presentation of nefertiti and that she's really become famous for being famous <laughs> and it, it started me wondering had had she not come from egypt to germany had she just gone into the stores of the cairo museum and not been recognized would we have the same understanding of the Amarna period? Because that head in itself is, is absolutely beautiful, mm. but it, it's not it, it's not a significant piece in that it doesn't actually tell us a great deal about the rain, and mm. yet it's the whole the whole hinge round which our understanding of that that period seems to, to to revolve around it. Because prior to the discovery of the head, people were interested in Queen T. After the display of the head people are interested in Nefertiti. So it's actually had the power to distort how we look at this period, which I think is absolutely fascinating because mm. there are not that many pieces of art that have actually influenced how we see the past. And I, I do wonder what would have happened if it hadn't been discovered or it had been discovered damaged or it hadn't been taken to Germany. Mm. Would we regard this period in the same way? Also, I think it, 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 in a way it, it sort of obscures the real Nefertiti because we look at this image, which is beautiful, She's a beautiful woman. And Nefertiti instantly becomes known for her beauty. Mm. Well, we don't actually know what she looked like, but she was far more than just a beautiful woman. She, she was other things as well. But somehow, with this bust in mind, it, it, it's how she looks becomes the most important thing about her. And I feel that it's not right that the most important thing about her is what she looked like or what she mm. might have looked like or what she probably didn't look like but wanted to be depicted as it sort of takes away from her as well as a person. Absolutely. So all these sort of aspects of it interested me. It's it's funny you mentioned the what the bust actually tells us about the the historical time. I've I've thought before that really this bust tells us much more about um ancient sculpting practices than it does about anything to do with the royal family or the the time period in which she was living. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I got my brother to, to create a replica just to see how it was done. And my brother is not a sculptor. So this took a very long time. I think he's still working on it. He's been doing it for about four years now. But just to sort of replicate it a bit and see how it could be made, which I found very, very interesting. But we don't tend to regard the bust in that way, do we? We don't tend to study it as a piece of art. We seem to see it as representative of, of something that I don't think it actually is. If mm. anything, it's a religious image so, rather than a, an, an image of the queen. I think for for the general public, the, the both the relatability of her her physical appearance and the the sheer beauty of you know the, the piece of work you know it is a it's an excellent piece of sculpture whoever did it was really on top top form that day um for the public that overshadows interest in who this person was but for egyptologists the sheer fame and ubiquity of the image to some of them or at least to some people discourages serious scholarly study of it because 
either personally they're just sick of seeing the Nefertiti bust or they are un- unable to to go deeper into what the work itself represents materially yes. because of all the stuff that inevitably comes along with it. Yes, exactly. That, that's exactly what I think. It's got a lot of baggage attached to it and we can't see it clearly anymore and we can't see her without seeing that image of her and it's almost it's hiding her, which is a shame because she's obviously a very, very powerful and interesting royal woman. Absolutely. You've written many, many works and several of them are on the great queens and women of ancient Egypt. Do you have any historical figures, either from Egypt or elsewhere, that you would particularly like to examine in future? To be honest, Queen T has always been someone who I'd have liked to have examined in the future. But leaving her to one side, because she kind of overlaps with what I've done already, I think I'm for the next thing that I'm working on, I'd rather try and look at non-royal women, mm. because we have a lot of focus on royal women, and they're fascinating, but they're not really typical of, of women as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice, I think, also to do something to look at, at more more normal women. Although, obviously, because of the way the archaeological record is and the written record, anybody who survives is not likely to be typical anyway. Mm. It would be nice to have a more rounded view of Egyptian society. Not everybody was a king or a queen or an elite. Um, there were other people there as well. So I'd like to sort of expand where I study, I think. Mm. Excellent. And I hope you'll keep us informed of your future research so that I can share it with the audience. You mentioned earlier that many, many Northwest English folk have excellent Egyptology collections around them and how you used to go to the local museum in Bolton of Manchester. Is that how you discovered ancient Egypt or was was there something more that drove you to um, become fascinated by the culture, first of all? It was that at first, but I thought growing up that every local museum had a big Egyptology collection. It never occurred to me that this was strange. <laughs> um, and in fact, we'd acquired them because Lancashire is a very strong cotton tradition. And the cotton that came to Lancashire was imported from via Alexandria. Mm. And the people who went out to acquire the cotton came back with an interest in ancient Egypt and with artifacts. And they funded societies and eventually the artifacts and the, the societies that they funded, everything made its way into the museums. And that's why we have so much. We're, we're really, really lucky to have it. But also I'm a, of an age that when the 1972 Touring Tutankhamen exhibition came to England, I was at school, I can remember it. There was a huge amount on the television at the time of really, really good quality material about ancient Egypt. And I was just about the right age to actually pick up on this and really enjoy studying it. And in Mm. fact, my school hired a train and we all went down the entire school on the train to London to see the Tutankhamen exhibition, um, which we'd never done before, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) I was 11. It didn't go too well because we couldn't actually book tickets on the day we wanted to go. There was a day that was reserved for schools, but we couldn't get the train on the day that was reserved for schools. So we went down on a different day and we all queued up in the British Museum courtyard, hundreds of us. And in fact, we never got in to see it. Oh. Yeah, I know. But, but actually, it was the first time I'd been to London, and I thought it was great anyway. But the whole thing, the sort of in, inspiring nature of the Tutankhamun and learning about it from the television and buying posters and, and books and so on, that I find that really inspiring. And I'm not the only one. There are several Egyptologists in the UK of almost exactly the same age as me have all picked up on this at the same time. And it was just, you know, if you're 11 or 12, that's the sort of thing that really, really fascinates you. And mm. I guess that it probably a lot of it came from that as well. Absolutely. 
how did you make the choice to pursue Egyptology in a professional capacity then? Because many people have the childhood fascination, but very few go on to do it full or at least full time or, you know, as a, as a dedicated profession. Well, it's quite a long and complicated story, um, but basically, <laughs> okay, um, I went to university and I decided that I would do something that I thought was interesting, but also a good degree for transferable skills. So I wouldn't necessarily be an archaeologist, mm. but I could be a lawyer or an accountant or a civil servant or something afterwards, because I actually wanted to do a subject that really, really interested me. And so I did, I did archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean, which was Egyptology and prehistory. And then I decided that I'd do a doctorate. So I did a doctorate, but I didn't do it in Egypt, Egyptology. I actually did it in prehistoric hand axes. So I studied, spent four years studying hand axes made by Neanderthal man in Western Europe, which is also equally wow. interesting. So yeah, really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. And then I taught prehistory for a year. And then there weren't very, very many jobs around in archaeology. So I decided just to get like a day job. Mm. As my day job, I decided to train as an accountant. So I started to work as an accountant, but I didn't mm. want to give up on the archaeology. So I started to write at the same time and also teach evening classes and, and, and study days and so on. So gradually, as time went by, mm. I found that I was doing more and more freelance work, writing and working with film companies and so on, and less and less accountancy. And I started to work for a magazine um, as, as Dr. Dig, who, who answered questions for children who put questions in about archaeology. And this was done online. And when a job came up at Manchester University, which is where I work now, which involved teaching Egyptology online, I, I was able to do that because I had a lot of experience of working online and teaching online. So it's kind of not a career path really to be emulated, but it, it's, it's always been interesting. <laughs> Can I say, I, I, and the, the period that I spent writing and being an independent scholar, I really, really enjoyed it because it gave me freedom to research exactly what I wanted to and write about what I wanted to. Absolutely. I, I think I experienced the same thing. One of the reasons I decided not to pursue the academic university career was because so many of my professors and lecturers and mentors, you know, people I looked up to and respected. Yeah would be would quite happily say you know they were looking forward to the holidays because they would finally have some time to do their own research and i thought well god if i get no time to do research what's the point that's the part i love <laughs> so yes um i yes. i completely sympathize with that with that situation and you know you know they say if if you do something you love you never actually work a day in your life so it yeah, may have been yeah. a circuitous route, but that might be the best. I mean, and now I've got a really interesting job because I teach Egyptology, but I teach it online. So I yeah. have students all over the world, which is absolutely fantastic. And, and I really love it. And wh what kind of countries do your students come from? Well, any, any country. We have Australian students. We have American students. We have European students. We have, obviously, we have UK-based students. Um, basically, we teach in English. So as long as a student is able to, to read and write in English and, and understand lectures in English, then they're, they're welcome to apply. Excellent. I will provide a link to that in the podcast episode so people can, people can go find it and hopefully join up. This is something I ask every guest that I have on here so far. If you could answer one historical question or conundrum, and we'll, we'll say specifically from ancient Egypt, if you could, if you could provide or 
determine the definitive answer with conclusive evidence to one question, what would you like to to answer? Oh, 100%. I would like to know what happened at the beginning of Hatshepsut's reign when her husband, Tuthmosis II, had just died. She's a, she's, sorry, a queen, queen regnant looking after the young Tuthmosis III. And suddenly she takes control. Suddenly she has herself crowned king. And from that point on, she's king. And what I would absolutely like to know is what happened to move her from being an absolutely typical queen who is looking after a young king to suddenly being crowned king. And how did she manage to persuade everybody around her that this was the right thing to do? Because I've thought about that and thought about it and thought about it, and I have absolutely no idea. But to me, that would be the absolute key to understanding her Chepsut's reign. And one day, one day, hopefully, we will find out. Hopefully. I mean, it must have been something important. It must have been some sort of crisis, I think, that allowed her to become king. There must have been some need for an adult king on the throne, but I'd love to know what it was. Mm. I wonder if Tutmos III was sick or something with malaria and they thought he wasn't going to survive, perhaps. Maybe, maybe, mm. but... That would be a very good question to answer. I would, I would love to know what was going through her head when she decided... This is this is what I'm this is what I'm going to do. This is my idea. Yeah, and how she persuaded yeah. everybody else it was a good idea as well. I mean, she just because mm, the sheer guts that took absolutely yes. Amazing. She couldn't. Have, I'm sure she couldn't have done it without support. My thanks to Dr. Tildesley for speaking with me. But we're not done yet. There will be a part three. It'll come in a few episodes when we get to the later years of Amunhotep the Fourth. Suffice to say. That is a particularly interesting period, and Dr. Tildesley and I had a particularly interesting discussion. Queen Nefertiti and her husband Amunhotep are a famous power couple. As you can imagine, their story is going to be complicated, but well worth the tale. From the moment she appeared on the throne, Nefertiti appears to be one of the most intriguing women in the royal history. On the next episode, we start diving into the creative expressions of Amun-Hotep IV. Now that he was comfortable upon the throne, the king was ready to put forward his ideas with confidence and gusto. In episode 110, we see the first Aten temples rise. Plus, the Aten itself begins to change substantially into a most curious form. Basically, Amunhotep was about to go wild with some of his curious and remarkable ideas. Episode 110, The Aten Appears, will release in three weeks. Apologies for the delay, but I'm waiting on some research materials to arrive from overseas. Materials that I think will be crucial for exploring the theology of Aten in future episodes. So to make sure that I'm ahead of the curve research-wise, I'll be taking one extra week to catch up on all that work. Thanks for your patience. Meanwhile, may Aten shine upon you, and the rays of the sun bring Ankh to your lungs. When you're- 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.